Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. We thank you for coming, worshiping with us, and being a part of our worship service this morning. And as Pastor Ted has already said, I hope that you have been warmly greeted by our church family and that you've already had uh, been able to experience the, the love that we have for one another in this place. And it's a love that is built upon our love for the Lord and our desire to worship Him. And so I'm excited to be here with you, and I'm excited that you're here with us as we worship the Lord together. If you have your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out? Turn with me for the last time to the book of 1 John. We have been studying through 1 John now for, by my estimates, about 16 weeks. And so we are going to be uh, looking at that again this morning. Never fear, though. We're going to just continue right on trucking and go to 2 John next week. So we're going to work through 2 John, and then guess what? We're going to work through 3 John. So we're going to work our way through all of the epistles of John. But this morning, we, we come to the end of John. It's, it's, it's like I, I've thought about. John's got his, uh, his running gears down. He's got his landing. Uh, he's ready to land the plane, and he's going to come in here. And the way I described it in the first service, Assurance Airlines is about to land on this runway and come to a close. And speaking of, of, of planes and their landing, I don't know if you heard about this. It was about six or so weeks ago that I read it. There was a Delta Airlines flight carrying about 130 passengers who landed in the wrong airport in South Dakota. The plane was scheduled to land in Rapid City, in, in an airport in Rapid City, South Dakota, but instead it landed on the Ellsworth Air Force Base in South Dakota, which is about 10 miles due north of Rapid City. Now, the reason that it landed there was there was no emergency. There was, it wasn't hijacked. There was no one on board who needed a physician's assistance. There was no weather-related issue that caused the plane to land in the wrong airport. As a matter of fact, what the news report said was that the, the Ellsworth Air Force Base is, is where it's located so close to the Rapid City uh, Airport because they're located so closely and because their runways line up exactly the same, the pilot simply got confused and landed the plane on the wrong runway. He thought he was in the right place. He thought he was in Rapid City, but the fact was he actually landed in the wrong place on Ellsworth Air Force Base. Now, you might think that that happens rarely and it's just a once-in-a-lifetime event, but that article went on to describe the fact that since the early 1990s, that well over 150 commercial flights and cargo flights have actually either landed in the wrong air, airport or have diverted just before they landed because they came to the recognition almost too late that they were landing in the wrong place. As a matter of fact, back in 2004, another commercial airliner landed at Ellsworth Air Force Base thinking that it was landing in Rapid City. Now, honestly, after I read those stories and I kind of did a little bit of that, I thought to myself, next time I get on an airplane, I think I'm going to rap on the door and ask the captain, are you sure you know where you're going to land this plane? Are you confident that you know that you can get us to where we're supposed to be going? I mean, are you absolutely sure that we're not going to end up in the wrong place? Well, you know, in many respects, that's sort of the, some of the questions that have been raised for us as we have worked our way through 1 John. There's been a lot of things that John has brought to our attention that he tells us that we need to be confident about. We need to be assured of. We need to know without any hesitation or doubt in our minds with regard to some of the things that are ours as believers because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, as we come to the very end of this book, we should not be surprised that John lands Assurance Airlines on, by reminding us of some of those confidences, some of those things that we as believers can know for sure as a result of what Christ has provided us through His death, burial, and resurrection. So let's begin this morning with verse 13. It's a verse that we've read and referred to numerous times throughout this book. Let's begin there and work our way through the end of the chapter this morning where under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes these words. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Many of your versions will not have these final words of verse 13. Nevertheless, I will read them for you. And he says, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Verse 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death, I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps him or keeps himself. And the wicked one does not touch him. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and, that, and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for what it teaches us and for what it reminds us that we know to be true. Now, Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning that you would comfort our hearts, encourage our hearts, and yet also convict our hearts of areas, Lord, that we need to be convicted about. I pray that through this process that you would continue to conform us in the image of your Son, Jesus, by whose blood we are saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, having read these verses to you, what I hope you were able to notice as I've worked my way through reading them is that just how many times John talks about things that we can be confident in our knowledge about. In fact, John talks about these things that we can know seven different times over the course of nine verses. And in each case, what he does is he points to something about which the believer in Christ can be sure. He ends his letter by taking the opportunity to remind us, to, to encourage us who are believers in Christ that there are certainties that come as a result of our relationship with the Father through His Son, Jesus. And so what I want you to note is the first point on your outline this morning, there's really nothing to fill out there, but I want you to see it. There are four things, four things about which the believer can be sure. That's, I've kind of condensed them down to these four things. That's what I want us to work our way through this morning. Four things about which the believer can be sure. The first one that we come across in our text comes from verse 13 that we referred to so many different times. This is a very important verse. It's a very important verse because it tells us something that we need to be assured of. 
Verse 13 says this, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What John tells us there is that as believers, we can be sure of our possession of eternal life. This is such a critical verse. Now, I've, I've told you before, this is the purpose statement. This is what many scholars believe is the overarching purpose statement of the book of 1 John. Because it tells us there is something that we as believers, it's different from the purpose statement that he wrote in the Gospel of John. We talked about the comparison there. In the Gospel of John, at the end of the book, in chapter 20, verse 31, John writes his purpose statement for why he wrote the Gospel there. And there he writes this. He said, I've written what I have, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In other words, John states there, the reason why I've given you all of these evidences of what Jesus did in his life is so that you can come to faith in Christ, so that you can come to know him in the fullness of the pardon of sin, and that by coming to him by faith, you may have life. But here in the epistle, the focus that John is writing for has changed. He's no longer writing necessarily and primarily to unbelievers. He's writing to you who believe. He's writing his letter to those who have already come to faith in Christ, and the purpose is to assure them, to give them confidence that they may know that they have that eternal life. Consequently, note the first thing on your outline under point number one that we can be sure of this morning. Point A is this, assurance of eternal life rests in faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Assurance of eternal life rests in faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son. Now, make no mistake about what John says here. And please don't miss the significance of what he says. Assurance of salvation is a tremendously important possession for the believer. Unfortunately, there's so many out there who don't possess any assurance at all. And one of the primary reasons that they don't possess any assurance is because their hope is not rooted in the finished work of Christ. Their hope is rooted in themselves. For many in the world today, if they give credence or if they give any kind of consideration to eternity at all, they have a hope-so salvation, not a no-so salvation. And by hope-so, what I mean is that they hope that one day when they die, they hope that God will receive them into heaven and He will look and He will compare all the good things that they've done in this life and then He'll look at all the bad things that he's done, they've done in this life and that they hope that the good things that they've done will outweigh the bad things and as a result of that measuring out that God does, He'll pat them on the head and say, that's good, just come on in. That's what they hope will happen. But I want you to know the Bible tells us something completely different from that. In fact, all the fault, many of the false religions and the false doctrines that are out there in this world today are based upon that kind of ideology and that kind of understanding. But the Bible says that we can have absolute assurance. It's not a hope-so salvation that we enter into. It's a no-so salvation. Why? Because verse 13 says that assurance and that confidence and that certainty rests upon not ourselves, not our good deeds, not our works, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross who died for our sins. And so while our salvation is, is not a hope-so salvation, it is nevertheless a salvation that is rooted in a sure hope that declares with certainty that if you will repent of your sins, and if you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, the Bible says He will do that. And you can know that it is done. Friends, I want you to know, if it were up to me, 
to save myself by my own good deeds and by my own actions. Knowing me the way that I know myself, I would always worry every night when I closed my eyes, have I done enough? And the truth of the matter is, the answer would inevitably and always be no. Because I know the depravity of my own heart and I know the sinfulness of my own life and I know full well that if, it, if salvation was based upon my works, it would not be a hope-so situation. It would be a hopeless situation. I could never earn my way into God's heaven and neither could you. It took the sinless, perfect Son of God to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And then he says, if you will believe in him, you can know for sure that you have eternal life. Let me say one last thing too. While I'm here and while I'm kicking it around, let me say one more thing. There are those who would agree with what I've just said, that our hope rests in Jesus Christ and His blood and His righteousness and not in our own works. But they also say that it's prideful and presumptuous for us to believe that we can know anything of assurance and for certain. To them, I would counter that if God has revealed in His holy word, as John puts it here, that we can know that we have eternal life through our belief in Jesus Christ, then to me, it is the epitome of pride and presumption to say that His word is incorrect. I believe that God has clearly stated you can know. And the way that you can know is through a confessed belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, there's no doubt about where your eternal life resides. God's word is clear. And the first thing that we learned this morning is this. Assurance of eternal life rests in faith in Jesus Christ, God's son. But notice what John says next, beginning in verse 14. Notice that he speaks about the confidence that we as believers can have in our prayer life. He's already talked about confidence in prayer earlier in this letter back in chapter 3. And in that particular context, he talked about our confidence that we have in prayer in this way. He says, we have confidence toward God and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. John brings together this whole issue of you can have confidence in your prayer life because you're living an obedient life. You're living with, with, with not in, in unconfessed sin, but you are living a life that is in, in coheres with what the Scriptures teach. And when that is the case, you can have confidence when you go before the Lord. Well, here he brings that same idea of confidence in prayer, and he says it this way in verse 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Therefore, note the second thing that we learned for sure in our text this morning. Point B on your outline is this. Confidence in prayer rests in God answering according to His will. Confidence in prayer rests in God answering according to His will. Now some have taken this verse as well as others that are in the New Testament and lifted them sort of out of their context and, and used them to say, well, as a believer, then you can just pray for anything you want. Just go out there and pray for anything because God is, is duty-bound to give you whatever it is that you ask. Listen, while the child of God can go to the Lord and ask anything of Him and ask Him for anything, John tells us here that our confidence rests not in our will. Our confidence rests in His will for us. I love the way that John Stott has explained it. He has written this. He says, prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or bending His will to ours but rather is the prescribed way 
of subordinating our will to His. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme that Jesus taught us to pray where He said, Thy will be done. You know how often in my own life I can point back to times when I started in prayer to the Lord and I had this thing on my mind that I wanted to sit before the Lord and kneel before Him and to pray about, God, I want you to fix this in my life or I want you to do this over here with this person or I want you to do this over there with this particular ministry and I had this whole thing that I wanted God to do and before the prayer was over with, God had changed my desires and changed my wants and changed my will to His will and my prayer looked completely different on the backside. Why? Because God was communing with me in prayer. It was not just me telling Him what I wanted to have happen. He was reminding me of that He was the sovereign God and that He was in charge of what was happening and He was moving my will into His. Now let me ask you, does that mean that it's not important to God what's important to us? Absolutely not. But it does mean that what is important to God should be the most important thing to His children. And if it's the most important thing to God, it needs to be the most important thing to us. And so He begins to move our will to His will. Consequently, we learn, again, from Jesus who prayed on the night before he was crucified, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. I came across this quote from Danny Aiken, who's the president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina. He said this. He said, God wants to give you what you'd want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. I'm going to say that again. That's good. You might want to write it down. God wants to give you what you'd want God to give you if you were wise enough to want it. Friend, when you think about that, you think, yes, that's what it means to pray into the will of God. So what does God want? What does God want for me to pray about? What should be on the tip of my tongue when I kneel before Him in prayer? Well, you know, many have taken this passage and they've said, well, you know, when I go to the Lord in prayer, what it means is I need to pray for a new car, a new house, a new job, a new spouse, a new something, something along those lines. But that's not the example. That's not the example that John shows us. He says that our confidence in prayer doesn't necessarily just immediately result in our focusing on ourselves. It actually does the opposite. We start focusing outward. So look what he says in verse 16. He says, if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he, that is God, will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. The first example, the first thing that John says that we ought to be praying in confidence about is not for ourselves but for our brother and sister that sin sin. Do you find that interesting? That's the example that he brings up. Now, let me just go on record by telling you that many scholars believe that these are the most difficult verses to interpret in all of 1 John. And we've already covered some very difficult passages in 1 John as we've worked our way through it already. But what tends to happen here is that we read these verses and we tend to focus on trying to identify exactly what John means when he says there is a sin leading to death. And we want to know what is that sin? And the next question that comes right behind it is this. Have I committed that sin or can I commit that sin? Now, let me just say this to you. I dealt with this specifically this last Wednesday night in my Wednesday night Bible study that we have here. And I I talked through this whole issue there. Let me briefly just say this to you. 
how one interprets what John says here with regard to death tends to push us in the way that we understand this passage. In other words, the interpreter must decide when John says there is a sin that leads unto death, is John referring to physical death or is he referring to eternal death? And how we answer that question helps us understand who can commit it and how it comes about. If it is physical death that John refers to here, then those who say that Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5 who died because they lied to the Lord, lied to the Holy Spirit concerning a, an amount of money that they gave, or, or the, the man who was caught in a very uh, uh, incestuous and improper relationship with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5. If you want to go home and read that, you can. And Paul says he needs to be turned over to Satan for the torturing of the flesh. Or in 1 Corinthians 11, when, when Paul says that there are those who have been partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily and, and raucously and, and getting drunk and having all kinds of gluttonous things take place there, and he says some of them have died as a result of that. They sleep, he says. They point to those examples and say, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about sin that leads unto death because there are times when things happen in the life of a believer when God takes them out. And I want you to know, I 100% believe that that's true. I think that people can go and, and, and backslide in certain areas and, and choose to fall in, in, into areas and they refuse to repent and God mercifully removes them from this life before they continue to do damage themselves and to others. But let me quickly to say I don't think that's what John is talking about here. I believe, based upon the way John has been writing all through chapter 5, that what he's talking about when he refers to death here is not physical death. Rather, he's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about eternal death. He's talking about death that entails the eternal separation of a person's soul from God in hell. And the reason that I believe that that is the case is because John has been contrasting. He's been talking about eternal life all through chapter 5. He's been talking about the assurance that we can have that we have eternal life. He said back in verse 12 that he who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. And we looked at that last week and we determined that the opposite of eternal life is eternal death. And so it is my contention that when John writes what he does here, he means the sin that leads unto death is the sin that can be defined as this. It is the rejection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's answer sent to earth for sin. And it is the rejection of Him and the willful decision to walk the other direction and to harden one's heart against the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. When that happens, friend, when that happens, the Bible is clear, there remains no other way for a person to be saved. They have sinned by rejecting the only hope they have for eternal life, and as a result, they have sinned unto death. Now, what John specifically says here, he says, I don't say that you pray for that person. That is not the same as saying don't pray for the person. It's not a command not to pray for them. Rather, what it is is, this, is an acknowledgement that the Lord may release us from that burden. He may release us from it, from someone who has hardened themselves to that. But what it does not mean, because we must not miss the overarching context of what he's saying here. What he is saying is, is that as believers in Christ, if you see a brother or sister engaged in sin, you are duty bound to pray for them. You are duty bound to pray for them and to go before the Lord and ask them that God might bring them back to the fold. And is that not really just an extension of what he's been teaching us all along? He's been teaching us all the way back in chapter 4 specifically about the love that a Christian is to have for his brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And friend, one tangible way, according to verse 16, that you and I can show love for a brother and a sister in Christ is to pray for them when they are engaged in activities, engaged in a, a willful way of life that runs counter to God's design for them. I've said this on numerous occasions, and I say it again this morning. It is not an expression of love to watch someone go down a road that will lead to their utter destruction and you not try to say something to them to stop them. It's not an expression of love to see them headlong embrace a lifestyle of sin and yet never try to come to them and, con and, and to confer with them and let, help them to see the error of their ways. Brothers and sisters, it's not an expression of love to never drop to your knees and to pray for someone who is in sin and who has embraced a lifestyle of sin. What I want you to know is that such prayers, they are the will of God. And the confidence that God provides us here in this passage is this, that if we pray according to God's will, He will hear our prayers and He will answer them. We can have confidence in that. Now, this whole issue of sin in the life of a believer brings forth a really grave kind of concept. The gravity of what we're discussing here introduces the next stage that we need to know about this morning, something that we should stop and consider just how important this issue is. In fact... When we consider what John says here about the gravity of sin in the life of the believer, and then we also consider what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, verse 12. In 2, verse 12 of Philippians, he says that we should work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. When we recognize that, that a healthy fear of the fragility of our faith, when that is coupled with an awestruck wonder, at the promise of God's protection and keeping, that too should be something that draws great confidence in our lives. In fact, note the next thing on your outline that I want you to see this morning. It's letter C under point number one. It's this. This is what we can be sure of. We can be sure of the promise of God's protection and keeping from the wicked one and that that rests in Christ's power. John tells us in verse 18, he says this, which is kind of an interesting verse. He says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, if we just look at that, we might think, well, wait a minute. What are you saying, preacher? Are you saying that you don't sin? No, I'm going to raise both hands and tell you that I do, that I have, and that that happens. That's not what John is saying here. And we've looked at this in previous lessons and we've understood in previous times that John is not saying that when a believer places their faith in Jesus Christ that suddenly they become perfect and that they never sin. That's not what he's communicating to us here. As we have learned in previous studies, there is the time when that does happen. Occasionally that happens. What he is saying is that a believer will not persistently and habitually embrace sinful behavior. They will not willfully choose to live in sin. And brothers and sisters, let me say this to you. A true believer must not attempt to compartmentalize their faith in Christ and separate it from their everyday living. In fact, that cannot happen. We will always live horizontally based upon what we believe vertically. It will always have that necessary domino effect. Now that doesn't mean that we will not occasionally fall into sin. As a matter of fact, to quote John Stott again, he says this, sin and the child of God are incompatible. They may occasionally meet. He acknowledges that. He says they cannot live together in harmony. They may meet as we go through our lives. There may be things that you and I fall into, but we cannot be at home with sin in our lives. 
The hope that comes from this passage is even though our lives may sometimes meet sin. Here's the thing. John tells us this, but he who has been born of God keeps him. And I believe that's the best way to understand this verse rather than himself. He who has been born of God keeps him and the wicked one does not touch him. The pronouns in this verse are very difficult and they're kind of difficult to navigate our way through, especially in the New King James, as a matter of fact. But I want you to recognize that when, when this verse talks about he who has been born of God, I believe he's referring to Jesus Christ. And many of your versions will confirm that because it capitalizes the word he or it capitalizes the word one in your versions, which is a reference to Christ. And so what John is saying to us is that we who have been born of God through our faith in Christ, we are kept by Christ, the one who was born of God, even though we may and so often do fall into sin. Christ protects us from sin. He protects us from the power of sin that it can have over us. Now, that in no way gives us a license to go out and live any way we want to. That in no way just gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card so that we can just go and blow off all restraints and live any way we want to because, after all, God's going to protect us. No, to do that is to, is to truly blow past the truth of what it means to be a child of God, and we've seen that. But nevertheless, what it is does is it produces confidence and assurance in our lives that God will protect us. He will protect us from the power of sin, but not only that, He will keep us from the power of Satan. Notice next, He will keep us from falling prey to the wicked one. And we know that the wicked one, He says, is though it, the world is under His sway. The world is defined in John's epistle as all of those things that have lined themselves up against the Lord and against His church and is always on the attack. And what we find out here is that believers who have truly trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, you know what happens as a result of that? We now have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And God has marked us out by placing his name upon us. And no longer does Satan have power over us. The Bible tells us here that God will keep us from his power. He protects us from sin and he keeps us from the power of Satan. Brothers and sisters, that is another thing of which you and I can be sure. But then there's the fourth thing. The fourth thing about which we can be sure really comes in verse 20. Because there John writes, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, if we just looked at the words that were repeated over and over again in this verse, we would be able to really kind of come to the understanding of it. He talks about knowledge, knowledge of the true one, knowledge of God, knowledge of the Son, and there he talks about tr knowledge twice. And then he describes uh, God as being the true one and being the true God. He does that, one him who is true and the one true God. Three times he uses that word. So if we just looked at those words, we would know that the certainty that John speaks about in this verse deals with knowing him who is true through Jesus Christ. That's the certainty that we have. And that certainty is what? It's the understanding that has been brought to our attention. And the understanding is this, that Jesus Christ came to this earth. That verb is very important. We've looked at it in the past. The theological truth that issues forth from that is that Jesus Christ could not have come to this earth if he had not existed prior to his coming. And so the fact that it says that Christ came to earth means that He is the pre-existent Son of God who has always been the Son of God. He has been the Son of God before time as we know it ever began. Nevertheless, at a particular point in time, He came. And He was born of a virgin. 
lived a perfect sinless life so that he could become the perfect sacrifice, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world so that you and I might have redemption from our sins. That is why the understanding that we have that comes from the scriptures is simply this. Christ came to be our redeemer. He came to redeem us. Not only that, he, became, he came so that he could reveal God to us. He could reveal the Father. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so as he reveals the Father, he reveals his love for us. He reveals our need for his love. And he helps us to understand that he has come to redeem us because he has revealed God's love to us. So the last point underneath those things that we need to be sure about this morning is this. It's the certainty of the revelation and redemption that rests in knowing the true God through His Son, Jesus Christ. What John does here in this verse is he reminds us that we are given the certainty of understanding that Christ reveals the Father to us and He reconciles us to Him by redeeming us through His death. Now, I don't know about you, that'd be a great way to end a letter right there. I mean, that'd just be a great way to just go off, wrap a bow on it, put amen on it, and say, that's the way I want to end a letter. That's the way he was going to do it. That's not how John ends it. John doesn't end it that way at all. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, instead, what he says is this. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. <laughs> feel like I'm sitting on the runway. We just can't. That's an abrupt way to end a letter. That's sort of an abrupt way to land the plane. It's unconventional. He doesn't say, hey, I love you, greetings from this brother or that brother, none of those things. Why does he leave us like this? Why does he end the letter this way? Well, remember, there were apostate false teachers who were doing everything they could to stir up trouble in those churches there in Ephesus. They had seceded from the church. They had bought into a false gospel of a false Jesus and they had fabricated things about him that were absolutely incorrect and untrue. And now they had come back into the fold and they were seeking to do everything they could to pull away from the truth that was being taught and that they had learned from the Apostle Paul and from the Apostle John and from all the other apostles who had written the New Testament. And what John is saying, look here above all else, understand this, don't go buying into the false stuff that's being sold to you. And I would say this to you this morning, if I could leave you with one thing when you walk out these doors today, it would be the exact same measure. Exact same message. Brothers and sisters, guard your heart against the worship of false gods and false Christs. In fact, note the last point on your outline this morning. The last point is this. One command that the believer must obey Guard against the incompatible and deadly worship of anything or anyone other than the one true God. Why? Why was that the most important thing for John to end his letter in? Why would it be the most important thing for us as we walk out into that world as we leave here this morning? Why is that the most important thing for us to take with us? Well, in light of what John has told us and we've already looked at this morning to do so, if we, if we worship anything or anyone other than the one true God through His Son, Jesus Christ, well, that is incompatible with the knowledge of the true God and the eternal life of which we can be certain. To worship anyone and anything other than the one true God is incompatible with the protection 
and the keeping that he offers us in, his, in the protection that he gives us by his power. To worship anything and anyone other than the one true Christ is incompatible with the confidence that we have that he will hear and answer our prayers. And to worship anything and anyone other than the one true Christ is incompatible with the assurance that he gives us of eternal life. And so, as John lands this plane, he really wants to make sure that we land our plane on the right runway in the right airport. Because, friend, the Bible is clear. Those who put anything or anyone else before God will forever be without God. Counterfeit gods and false Christs may provide all kinds of promised benefits and blessings, but they will always, always, always fail to deliver because they cannot provide you with the assurances and the confidences that only come through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who has revealed His Word to us by His Holy Spirit. Friend, to give first place in your life to anything or anyone else besides the Lord Jesus will ultimately result in you landing your plane on the wrong runway of an airport that you will not want to be on and would never want to go. And so John's final word to us in this epistle is guard yourself against the worship of counterfeit gods in Christ. And it leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning with which I will close. My sermon in a sentence is this. Since we know that our assurance, confidence, promise, and certainty come from the only true God through faith in Jesus, His Son, then we must guard our hearts against the temptation to worship worthless and counterfeit representations of Him. Oh, that we as believers in Christ and members of Ivy Creek Baptist Church would hear this and obey it. Because brothers and sisters, this is the word of God that I nearly dropped. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.